You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome to episode 274 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm your host for today. Joining me in what is a very early morning for uh, our recording anyway is Nathan Gilmore, who is a professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you doing, Nathan? I am feeling good. Uh, Emanuel College is on uh, fall break this week, uh, and I'm actually officiating a wedding for two former students tomorrow, so they will be married listeners by the time you hear this if I manage to do what I'm supposed to do tomorrow. Now, Nathan, when you when you marry uh, people, do you use the same sermon every time, or do you write a new one? You know, actually, I, I leave it up to the couple whether I give a homily at all. Uh, in this case, I'm not. I Here's my uh, phenomenologist coming out. A wedding is an occasion where small children are present, and frankly, not a whole lot of people care what I have to say. They're there to see the bride and the groom. Uh, so if they request that I speak for a few minutes, I limit myself to five minutes. If they don't want me to give a homily, I don't. And this weekend, I'm not. Well, that seems fair. I was asked to do a wedding a couple years ago, and I said, uh, I don't do them because I'm not a clergyman, and you should, uh, you should have a clergy person do your, uh, do your wedding. That's fair enough. I, uh, I suppose I, uh, I do so, I mean, for my students. I mean, it's not because of any regard for myself, I don't think. Well, and also you are, um, you're ordained, so I, I would consider you a, a clergy person. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I, I'm an ex-preacher, but I, I guess that has preacher in it. But I, I mean, I wouldn't yep. go online and be become fake ordained to do a wedding. I, I, I think there's something, frankly, kind of monstrous about that. Maybe we should do an episode on weddings. Yeah. Like Joey Tribbiani. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, everybody. We went to four student weddings a couple of years ago, and of them, only one had an actual minister. Ooh. And they, they were Christian college weddings. It was crazy. Anyway, uh, also joining us, uh, sighing in disbelief, is David Grubbs, who is a assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, you ever performed a wedding? No, but my little sister asked me to speak at her wedding before the official minister stepped in and, you know, did the due diligence, and that might be as close as I get without ever being ordained. Um, it's about the only thing in a wedding that it's about the only thing I haven't done in a wedding yet. So maybe one day, I don't know. Maybe so. Well, before we get to our topic today, uh, what's new on the Christian Humanist Radio Network? So we've got a new Christian feminist podcast on gender equality in the in parenting and domestic labor. Uh, that'll be in your ears, listeners, although as we record this, I haven't had a chance to listen myself. Uh, Sectarian Review has done an episode on Jordan Peele's horror movies, and I believe that is a, uh, a recording of a uh, conference panel that uh, Danny did. Uh, I'm thinking with Matthew Brake, but I'm not 100... No, 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 no. With, with Chris, Chris Maverick. Maverick. Chris Maverick, my apologies. Uh, and then, Michael, I believe we've got another uh, core curriculum, do we not? Yeah, we do. We continue to have new core curriculums, uh, curricula, probably through uh, through late November. And then uh, we'll have to start talking about recording the next season. And I'm looking forward to that one. Well, our topic for today is two essays by the French Catholic philosopher and playwright Gabriel Marcel. The two essays are called Orthodoxy versus Conformity and In the Margins of Ecumenism. Now, those, um, those essays are from a... a collection that is translated into English as Creative Fidelity. The French title has really nothing to do with that title. Uh, if if you don't have access to that book, which I assume most people don't, I, I retranslated both of those essays, and they're on our website, which you can 
So if you go to the show notes for this episode, you can look at them there. They're, it's probably 20 pages altogether, uh, but I would recommend probably reading those if you're interested before you listen to this conversation on it. I suppose you don't have to. Marcel is not a household name. Um, I, I know him very well because I'm trying to write a book about him and also translate some of his plays into English. So um, uh, there's that. But he, he he's, he's kind of a... Christian link between uh, between the French phenomenologists and the existentialists, and then mainstream Catholic, the mainstream Catholicism of the 20th century. So, on the one hand, he runs in circles with Jean-Paul Sartre, and the other hand, he's hanging out with Etienne Gilson, uh, the the medieval philosophy professor. Uh, so uh, th- that's kind of who he is. Let's let's get into these two essays, which are not uh, among his most read work, I would say. Uh, We're talking about them because I hope they're going to give us a way to navigate intra-Christian arguments, whether those arguments are political or theological. So I want to start not with the essays, but with a couple of test cases that were pretty high profile recently. Uh, So on the one hand, you have Sorab Amari, I think is how you pronounce his name, versus David French on the political side. And on the other hand, on the theological side, you have David Bentley Hart versus a whole host of other people. Nathan, you've got a toe, albeit a small one, in that latter debate because you interviewed Hart for Profiles. Would you mind giving us an elevator version of those two squabbles just so we'll have kind of test cases to work off of as we go forward? Certainly. I'll start with David Bentley Hart because, as you said, I've uh, interviewed him a couple times on Christian Humanist Profiles, uh, once about his uh, New Testament translation and once about his more recent book, That All Shall Be Saved. Uh, Hart, first of all... uh, made his splash in the theological world with really a powerful book called uh, The Beauty of the Infinite, which is a book uh, drawing together uh, classical aesthetics and classical theism. Uh, It's a book that, you know, featured pretty prominently in my own dissertation and really established Hart in my mind as, as one of the great influences on me as I continue to try to think philosophically uh, about how Christianity relates to the ideologies that stand as you know competitors to Christian theology. Now, that book was huge among theology nerds and you know seminary students. Uh, one of the books that really made a splash in a, in the general public is called Atheist Delusions, and this really established uh, David Bentley Hart as a pugilist in the public square. Uh, he spent, you know, it's not a long book, it's about 180 pages, uh, just punching Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and other such people in the nose over and over and over, uh, using his encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of uh, the history of antiquity and other such things. And it's interesting as a contrast, you know, um, oh, and I've, I've, I've just lost his name, Michael, the, uh, the Irish the- theorist who we like so much. Um, oh, I can't think of who you're... All I can think of is Dennis Donoghue. No, no. Um, at any rate, he wrote... Uh, I, I'll think of his name here in a moment. There was it's another very book, early in the morning, listeners. Yes, yes. But there's another book uh, that came out uh, against the New Atheists, you know... Oh, right Terry about Eagleton. same time. Terry Eagleton, uh, in which he, you know, approaches it with a lot of humor... Uh, he makes jokes, he conflates, you know, Dawkins and Hitchens and refers to them as a conglomerate called Ditchkins throughout the book. And really, I mean, it, it's more of a, a honk on the nose rather than a punch in the teeth. Uh, David Bentley Hart doesn't do that. I mean, he uh, insults, uh, he throws punches. I mean, even though he is very publicly a critic of the Protestant Reformation, uh, he fights like Luther. So, here recently... Uh, in 2018, when he published his translation of the New Testament for Yale University Press, uh, famously, infamously, I would say, N.T. Wright uh, came out with a review of it, made some critiques. Wesley Hill wrote a an online review of it, came out with some critiques. And David Bentley Hart, in you know uh, a few different uh, social media platforms, uh, I tried to steer him away from it in my own interview, but other people who interviewed him about the New Testament translation really just kind of reveled in the fact that he was, you know, kicking N.T. Wright in the knees, that he was slapping Wesley Hill in the face, uh, just really kind of reveled in his uh, pugilistic style, we'll put it that way. 
Uh, on the other, and what's interesting, of course, is that David Bentley Hart does not have any social media presence or website of his own, but he does show up on other people's websites to write really scathing responses to negative reviews. This year, of course, you know, with his book, uh, That All Shall Be Saved, which you can listen to my interview with him about that on Christian Humanist Profiles, again, people who are more inclined to enjoy rather than to lament uh, such brawls among the faithful uh, have really highlighted the fact that, you know, he is, uh, you know, bashing beer bottles over the heads of Calvinists and, you know, gut-punching Thomists and so on and so forth. Like I said, I mean, for me, uh, I've got, you know, I'll just go ahead and confess, I mean, my my disposition prefers ongoing open inquiry to beef. Uh, so, you know, I, I just, I, I don't have any taste for that. Now, on the other hand, and I'm talking way too long here, I apologize, guys, the uh, political debate between uh, Sohab Amari, and I, I don't know if I'm, Sohab, pardon me, Amari, and David French happened uh, this summer when I was making attempts to stay off of social media uh, because of the ugliness that was arising in response to Georgia's and Alabama's uh, heartbeat bills. Um, but I, I went ahead and read up on it, you know, prepping for this podcast. And this is more a dispute about terms of engagement for what gets called the culture wars. Uh, Amari uh, came out with this uh, essay in, uh, this summer, summer 2019, saying that there's a certain style of conservative Christian uh, engagement, uh, and he identifies it with the National Review editor, who's only going to be National Review editor for a few more weeks now, uh, David French. And he says that David French's position, we can characterize it as something that privileges politeness uh, over belligerence, uh, and that, you know, views pluralism as the ultimate goal of the state uh, rather than the establishment of a common good. And Amari says that uh, if everyone were as polite as David French, this would be fine. But the moment that we actually inhabit uh, is one in which people use the tools of the liberal order in order to establish illiberal dominance uh, over those who are traditional in any kind of religious sense. David French responds that, uh, first of all, his own personal history uh, is something other than the polite and pleasant David French that Amari lays out, and that's an important thing, uh, but also that there are, you know, certain intellectual and political problems uh, with, you know, saying that the state needs to establish virtue in the people. Uh, and, you know, Ultimately, I mean, you know, listeners, if you go back to our episode on John Locke's essay on religious toleration, you'll hear that ultimately I'm, I'm going to be disposed towards David French's position anyway. Uh, I think that the best work that the state can do is to keep us from killing each other so that we actually have time to convince each other. Uh, but uh, th- those are the basic uh, squabbles that were here. And I, I realize that the elevator ride has just now gone up to the 374th floor, and I apologize for that. Uh, it's like David, the Great there Glass other, uh, Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Michael, <laughs> are there any, any other details from these disputes that we want to lay out before we get into the Marcel essays? No, I think I think that covers it pretty well, other than to say maybe that Amari is a proponent of what's called integralism. Uh, the, the yeah, idea... can you speak to that? Because I'm not entirely familiar with that term. It's, it's drawing on a concept of Thomas Aquinas and actually Dorothy Day, of all people. Um, that, that says the, the law the law of the land needs to be formulated such as to make people into saints or to make it easier for people to become saints. So we're, we're basically talking about creating a society that promotes Catholic doctrine in some ways um, and, and the degree to which that what, what exactly that looks like depends on which integrationalist you're talking about. And w- one, one thing that's interesting is that in particular is a concept that Marcel has been interested in even before he converted to Catholicism. Um, so some of his early plays deal with that even before he himself was a Catholic, uh, which, you know, whatever. But it doesn't really matter for what we're talking about today because we, we're not going to evaluate the substance of those arguments. We're going to evaluate the way 
people behave in those arguments. Um, and I think we can agree that there's a fair amount of douchebaggery that gets thrown around in in both of these sets of arguments, wouldn't you say? <laughs> Not the term that I would pick, but I don't disagree with the substance. David, anything to add there? Just the way that it charts onto these onto these essays. Um, the the first essay, Exit Orthodoxy versus Conformity, and then the second essay in the margins of uh, ecumenism um, seem to be sort of floating above debates that are that are pretty closely parallel to the ones that you brought up. Um, one of them being uh, Catholics in France um, arguing over what their take should be on uh, the uh, Spanish Civil War that was going on at that point, and then the other uh, being d debates over over what to do with um, other traditions of Christianity. To what extent can a Catholic uh, Protestant dialogue happen, and under what terms? So, so that kind of um, arguments theological between different uh, different branches, different traditions, different neighborhoods of Christianity um, on one side, but also debates within, uh, cr between Christians over what um, being faithful within their own political moment looks like. Yes, that, that's exactly right. And, and I, I will add two things about that, which is both of these essays were first published or delivered in 1939, um, kind of an important year for Christian Europe. Yeah. Um, and there's a third one that I could have assigned called The Phenomenology and the Dialectic of Tolerance, which, which deals much more with how Christians ought, to, um, ought to, to think and talk about people who aren't Christians. And, and in fact, that, that essay is kind of the substance of the Amari and French debate, uh, but it, it, it's not what I was interested in in this episode. But if people are interested, that's in the same collection there. All three of those are right in a row in, in Creative Fidelity. So uh, that option is open to anybody who's more interested in it. Uh, orthodoxy con versus conformity obviously hinges on the distinction between those two terms. Marcel points out that orthodoxy has historically been a positive term, although there's a long quotation from G.K. Chesterton that modern people really inexplicably take pride in their heresy. Conformity uh, is pretty much always a pejorative term. David, how does Marcel use those two terms, and how do his definitions differ from more common ones? Okay, so he sets out the, I guess, the more common ones first, which is uh, as to treat these as, as synonymous. Um, conformity is... Uh, is simply to um, have all of your ideas drawn into uh, into harmony with some uh, with some external source, um, uh, presumably uncritically, um, probably because of some reasons other than uh, your your persuasion that those things are are the case, um, a consistency that exists for 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 reasons other than. Um, the coherence of the ideas themselves or values themselves and that orthodoxy is just um, a fancier name for conformity in matters of religion so that's that's sort of what he's what he's uh, pushing back against uh, his definitions and he sort of he doesn't have a single sentence that you can pull, but a number of different sentences that sort of run at it from different angles. Um, it seems to me that we lose sight of the essential thing about orthodoxy when we don't see anything in it other than the fact of maintaining correct opinions about the matters of dogma. Orthodoxy is an absolute fidelity, so I'm assuming that's a faith word. That's um, a very important word for Marcel's philosophy. Okay. Uh, in the order of affirmation, uh, to the word made flesh. It's the fidelity of an adhesion or a response. It's incarnated in the credo that is said every hour in the day in every place by the voice of the universal church and every man of faith to the degree that he participates in this living body. So the first way that he takes a run at orthodoxy is to say this isn't just about having the right opinions um, about theology. It's about it's about a faithfulness that 
um, comes out in what you what you profess and what you affirm. Um, it's a it's a it is a a kind of uh, uh, what what you might say uh, an an attested intellectual faithfulness. Um, and an and a existential faithfulness as well, David. Uh, when he talks about fidelity, he is generally talking about creating yourself through commitment to someone or something. So it's not just an intellectual fidelity here. This is about this is about remaining faithful on a human level to to the Word yeah. of God made flesh. Yeah. Well, I, I I chose that word um, because of something that I that that I feel like I'm seeing here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But it's to say that to say that something is intellectual um, is not to say that it is distanced from matters of of that kind of personal self-defining merit. To say that 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 something is intellectual is not to say that it is separate from those things. That in fact our faithfulness, our fidelity, ought to be pouring into our brains. Yes, that well, that that's true, but. I mean, one of one of Marcel's mm-hmm. big bugbears in through through his career is idealism. So we, I just I just want to make it clear that for him, an abstract intellectualism removed from uh, removed from daily life is really kind of nonsensical. So so yeah, yeah this this is, this is an intellectual fidelity, but in being intellectual, yeah. it's also more than intellectual. Well, he's used uh, he's t- he's used. Um... The, the reference to the credo being uh, uh, being recited um, throughout the world, so there is a there is a concreteness that comes along with this intellectual affirmation. It's not a purely or merely intellectual affirmation. Yes. Um, these uh, skipping a little bit um, that to to dismiss um, orthodoxy as a kind of mere intellectual conformity. Uh, Ex, uh, the ex, uh, let's go of uh, the essential thing about Christianity. Um, it extinguishes that uh, revealed content without which it ceases to be a religion and degenerates not even into a philosophy, but into a bloodless and inconsistent ethics. Orthodoxy is fidelity to the word of God, but this amounts to saying that this word loses its meaning and its power of application as soon as we move away from the supernatural order that is the plane of incarnation. So for him, it's very, very important to say that orthodoxy is up against the horizon of a real God who actually is in a certain way and says particular things. Um, And this makes it... Um, a very different kind of thing from conformity, which he uh, he contrasts by saying uh, this is uh, conformity is an uh, whatever it is intellectual, aesthetic, political is a submission to a certain slogan emanating not from a person but from a group that presents itself as incarnating what must be thought, what must be appreciated in a particular country at a precise moment in a, of history, but which refrains, of course, from recognizing the indication of relativity that affects every historical modality of knowledge and taste. Um, it's the, what he's calling conformity is that, that tendency to, to absolutize um, something that seems to be of a historical moment and and that that contrast orthodoxy's um tie of fidelity to something that is beyond the moment um versus conformity's attempt to just sort of impose its moment um not a, not only across you know all the minds and wills of its little sphere but to in some way impose that um, over the consciousness of other times and other spheres. Yes, very good. And he doesn't use this word, but I, I think we can extrapolate from that and say that conformity, especially to these political ideals, is really a kind of idolatry because it's it's taking something that is um, really inherently situational and making it into an absolute, whereas orthodoxy is about conforming to the thing that actually is absolute, which is the word of God. Yes. Nathan, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think that this is a far more elegant alternative uh, to something that I encountered first in seminary, and I've, I've certainly seen 
uh, in the 20 years after seminary, which is to uh, assert a distinction uh, between orthodoxy on one hand and the decidedly ugly word orthopraxy on the other hand. Uh, so what Marcel seems to want to say, and by the way, listeners, if I slip and call him Gabriel Marcel Wallace, that's only because I'm from the 90s. Um, but uh, this notion of orthodoxy, I mean, has a lot more continuity, I think, with antique and medieval notions of philosophy. In other words, you know, philosophy as something that uh, gives shape to a life uh, not merely to a set of systematic propositions. Uh, so I really like this. I, and honestly, Michael, it reminds me of another figure uh, who is John Milbank, uh, whose you know, sort of bombshell book, Theology and Social Theory, uh, insists that, uh, you know, and, and I have to think he's influenced by Marcel, uh, that every kind of thought uh, eventually becomes hierarchical in some sense, but that Christian thought has to be provisionally hierarchical because our point of reference is not to uh, the ideology of our moment, but to a God who transcends the moment and the reality that results from that, that our understanding of God uh, might unfold, might develop, might reform, uh, so that the possibility always lies open, and we're going to talk about that notion here in a little while, I realize, um, but it always lies open to the possibility that we have to reconfigure the hierarchy uh, of ideas. Uh, so, you know, like I said, I mean, I, I think that this uh, this approach to orthodoxy, frankly, you know, gives orthodoxy its fullness in a way that, you know, modern uses of orthodoxy tends to evacuate it of. Yeah, I like I like that as well. And I, I don't know, um, I've never read Milbank. I follow him on Twitter and, and I mean... In, in some ways, I think he probably belongs in the uh, David Bentley Hart uh, category of social engagement. <laughs> oh, he really does. I mean, I yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, one thing about Hart and Milbank, I have learned a ton from them. They have shaped me as a thinker. Uh, to deny that would be just an utter lie. But man, oh man, do I cringe when I see that they've written something on the Internet. Yeah, and, and to that we yeah. might add James K. Smith or Rod Dreher and or other people we kind of broadly admire who nevertheless um, uh, use use the public forum as an excuse to uh, to air their personal grievances. Oh, indeed. Yeah. Am I right to hear in the way that he writes of this? Um, maybe also an uh, something that's. Uh, that's responding to something similar to what um, Machen's book Christianity and Liberalism was addressing. Just just that 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 insistence that there there must be a a genuine claim about the supernatural that impinges upon what we also say about Scripture. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I I think so. You you can't you can't just turn this you can't just turn this into a species of ethics like the worst of Protestant liberalism does in the twentieth century. But I I hesitate to put him too far on Machen's side because of course at the end of this it's it's subtle but he does it. He he's praising Karl Barth, uh, Machen's great enemy. <laughs> well, you know, but Barth's not an anti supernaturalist. No, no, he's and not. That, and and, and what he's praising him for is a fidelity in the face of a politics that demands absolute allegiance. So, yeah. Okay, well, he talks quite a bit about this French term, bien pensant, which in, in the essay I translated literally as right thinking, but I was really, really sorely tempted to translate it with the currently trendy phrase virtue signaling. <laughs> Nathan, what do people mean when they use that epithet and what might Marcel say about it if he were on Twitter? Well, virtue signaling uh, is a phrase, on, honestly, I, I forgot, I was planning on running down its origin uh, before we recorded, but I just forgot. Uh, but in its current use, I mean, it tends to mean uh, a sort of morally costless uh, assertion, usually in a public forum, usually digitally, but not always, uh, that lines up with uh, current conformities. I, I, I'm tempted to say current orthodoxies. But given uh, Marcel's categories here, I'm going to say current conformities. Uh, some examples might be uh, whenever Donald Trump misbehaves, 
uh, it becomes a, a sort of digital obligation to comment publicly on how terrible he is and how terrible the thing he has done is. And if you don't, you know, in these uh, contexts, a lot of times you get you get accused of uh, showing your privilege, which is one of the devil terms of the Twitter era, uh, and you know, showing that you know you live a life in which uh, not resisting these things every time they pop up is a luxury that you have. So, in Marcel's essay, you know, the the uh, what what is it? Uh, Beyond Passant. Uh, doesn't seem to have that immediacy, but I think that's a function of, of technological change more than anything. Agreed. What, it, what, what he seems to be more concerned with uh, is that whenever you think publicly, whenever you assert publicly, uh, that you do so in the ways that conform uh, to the ideological camp uh, that, you know, is uh, relevant. So, I mean, you know, to go back to the example of the Spanish Civil War, uh, it means an obligation to, depending on your faction, uh, always refer to the enemies of Generalissimo Franco as Stalinists and Marxists and anti-Christians, or alternately, always to refer to uh, the forces of Generalissimo Franco as fascists and mercenaries and so on and so forth. So, uh the notion that, you know, Marcel is getting at, and I think he's right, uh, is that to do such things, and I'm borrowing a little bit from Alistair McIntyre here, but I'm always borrowing something from Alistair McIntyre, uh, it's the notion that the the discourse of protest, which I think is related to this, uh, never does aim at persuasion. It always aims at galvanizing those who are already converted. Uh, and I think that, you know, again... If Marcel were to have a gander at Twitter and Facebook and really the American political scene, which have conformed themselves uh, to the Twitter and Facebook sense of time, uh, it's that so very few people now, uh, and there are exceptions, of course, but so very few people now uh, even hold out the persuasion of people who disagree as a possibility uh, you know, when people call for reform, uh, it's not to make people more able to see each other's points, to come to a consensus, things like that, but it is to uh, basically manipulate the political system, uh, either through, you know, attempts to limit voter registration or to redraw district lines uh, or to abolish the Senate or to do away with the Electoral College. Uh, but what these all of these things have in common uh, is that they are tools to bring the brute force of numbers to bear so that you can impose your will on the other. The other is never going to change, but you can make them behave with the force of, you know, the state. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that Marcel would certainly uh, recognize that uh, virtue signaling is tied to a certain kind of poisonous politics, uh, I, th I think he would find analogies with our own moment. Um, David, I mean, are, are there other things that uh, are worth saying here? Oh, you know, there's always things worth saying, but my one rule has has always been to never say anything political on Twitter. <laughs> um, yeah, That's just because you're privileged, David. Yes, I am. Um, you know, David, all that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Well, I'm doing a whole lot of that on Twitter. <laughs> um, because I, 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 I resent the, the idea that everything calls for me to chime up and join a chorus. You know. And is that is 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 that my privilege? I don't know, but I'm not gonna do it. So somebody, and I, it's some mathematician, intellectual. I think I, this has stuck with me for several years since I read the quote. Says that there's no need for you to say what everybody else is already saying, almost by definition. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
and what and what could I add? You know, it's it's you know I when when those kinds of things happen, what I see is not you know a whole bunch of people you know I, I don't know speaking the truth to whichever power it is that they want to resist. Uh, what I see is the two minute hate from 1984. Um, it's it's just a ritual that's there to solidify the um, and and keep stoked the passions. Um, against the monstrous other, which if you were actually embedded in the in the physical place where you were, um, it would be very difficult to sustain that kind of theoretical rage, I think. You would have things in your own context that would be that would be interesting you. Yeah, and well, I'm, I'm sure you picked up from this essay, and this is not the only place he does this, but his disdain for the press, and I, yeah. I think it's yeah. I think it's just that sort of abstraction that he's objecting to, David. That this notion that in the press you can say things that you would never say in person, and the press has this illusion of objectivity that um, that leads to conformity. Right, right. And I think in our moment, Michael, uh, what we can add to this, you know, to David's good point here, uh, is that you know the function as I see it and you guys can correct me if I'm getting this wrong of this uh, everyone must chime in mentality uh, is to make a public display to people who hold to odious ideas that people who surround you people who go to work with you people who are in your family uh, people who are watching you as you walk out your front door also despise you because you hold these ideas and I mean frankly you know, again, to go back to McIntyre, the aim seems to be to cow people out of holding such ideas openly, uh, which does some work, but the work it seems to do is, you know, just to pick an obvious example, is to make a gigantic disparity uh, between the polls about who would win the presidential election in 2016 and the actual vote count, because people were apprehensive about saying that they were going to vote for Donald Trump when they were called by pollsters because they knew that the verbal abuse and, you know, possibly the professional consequences would be dire. But then when they were in the secrecy of the ballot box, the resentment that comes from being cowed comes out. Uh, and I, I might just be going entirely to hillbilly elegy there, uh, but that's kind of the world I live in. So, David, am I misrepresenting you? Huh. <laughs> Well, I mean, that isn't what happened when I went into a voting booth, um, so uh, I don't know. But I, I'm, well, not... I'm not saying that you did that. <laughs> I, what I am saying is that people yeah. who I know uh, who never mentioned the name Donald Trump on social media before November 2016 were suddenly fans in December 2016. Yeah. I, you know, there's, there's, there's something in me that... Uh, finds such uh, s such an odium at the way that the politics is done that okay here's the here's my closest analogy. My brother used to be a referee at an indoor paintball arena, and every once in a while, a player would think that it was funny to shoot the ref. So what would happen is that my brother would carefully note who shot him, go to the locker, suit up in the colored jumpsuit of the opposite team, go back on the field, and then proceed to sort of like John Woo gun ballet style take out everybody on the team of the person who shot him. Nice. And that's often the way that I feel when I see the way that politics is done in our current environment, I look at a side and I look at, I look at an action and say, that's awful. And it makes me want to put on the other side's uniform just so that I could beat them. But then I look at the other side and so, and say, yeah, but would I choose, would I, would I choose this? Would this be my Jersey? Would that be my coach? Would this be my mascot? Um, would that be my quest? if it wasn't for the odium of reaction and and then i back off now i want to make i want to make something clear 
which is that uh, the way we're talking can make it sound like there's no stand that a Christian must take. And he uses this um, Spanish Civil War example because uh, because both sides really are hostile to Catholicism as he as he sees it practiced. You know, he doesn't want fascism or Stalinism. Yeah. Um, but also he, he clearly thinks that there are right and wrong political opinions because otherwise he wouldn't be able to praise the confessing church in Germany. So sometimes right. fidelity oh, sure, does require sure. the rejection. I won't, I won't say the adoption, but it requires the rejection of a particular political position. I, I just want to make yeah, it, yeah, there's, there's the, a kind of quietism that the things we're saying yeah. can lead to, and I don't think Marcel is a yeah. quietist. I, I hope you know. I, I would be I would be very sad if the things that I were saying got taken to that ultimate conclusion, Michael. Um, thank you for thank you for pushing back on me on that. What what I resent is the um, the polarity, the Manichaeanism of our current moment that says you don't like this. All right, then suit up to do that. As yeah. If, yeah. As if there are only the two sides. Yep, that's it. That's precisely it. In the Bush era, if you criticized George W. Bush, people would often reply, oh, so you liked Clinton. Well, no, I'm capable of disliking two things. Yeah, yeah. Or if you criticized Bush, they would say, so you were objectively pro-Al-Qaeda. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Well, I but, support you know, the troops. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can, we can say that every, every election, things come down to some kind of a Super Bowl. That's true. But the the fact that our electoral process results in a final sort of for most people binary decision, except for those who you know kind of like pitch their things at a third party who's not actually on the field. That's me. That's me. I know that's you. Um, I believe all three of us voted for third party candidates in 2016. Yes, but that doesn't that doesn't change the fact you know in, in any other sphere. The fact that two teams make it to the Super Bowl doesn't make every other team cease to exist. But we somehow behave as if that's what's going on in electoral politics in America. That's the way the two-party system wants us to think about it. And in this analogy, I'm just going to note that Donald Trump is the New England Patriots. Well, he loves them. Um, And this is why I think Marcel's Catholicism is important because Catholicism does not map neatly on, at least in this country, to either either political party, um, and and so I think I think it's easy enough to take Catholic social doctrine and say, well, neither of these people is really your friend, and and you need to be uncomfortable whoever you're supporting if you support anybody. Right, and 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 I, and I think you know what what David's getting at is that there's a sort of implied moral syllogism that, uh, you know if you oppose this terrible phenomenon in the world uh, and one of the two factions uh, supports it less enthusiastically or at least, you know, sort of benignly lets it happen rather than promoting it, then therefore not to promote that political faction of the two political factions is to support the terrible thing. And again, I, I think that that's just utterly false and that is something that we combat even as we must say that you know the confessing church is uh, a genuine expre- a genuine uh, manifestation of faithfulness pre- precisely for its resistance yeah i mean they want us to imagine some kind of manichaean armageddon you know with the forces of darkness and the forces of light and what i see is something is often very often something that's maybe a little bit closer to for a fistful of dollars <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I think alien versus predator. <laughs> whoever whoever wins, we lose. I think I think that's the lesson of the Civil War for a Catholic, or the uh, I'm sorry, the Spanish Civil War for a Catholic is is neither one of those sides has your best interest in mind, and and in fact, the victory of either side is going to be disastrous for Catholicism as Marcel practices it. So I I it, it's interesting that's his example, and he doesn't really evoke Nazi Germany until. Um, later in the essay and then kind of in a quiet way because that's not his point he he wants us to know that most of these political battles don't have a clear-cut right side and wrong side sometimes both sides are wrong 
um, and and the Christian has to kind of stand above it and, and maybe cautiously support one side, but certainly understand why the other party is supporting the other one. And I, I will let our listeners decide for themselves whether they think that um, Trumpism is closer to the Spanish Civil War, or closer to Nazi Germany. Two more things about virtue signaling. And, and both of these come from the top of page three in the translation I've provided. Um, when you when you say virtue signaling, when you when somebody says something and you accuse them of virtue signaling, first of all, he says you have no right to do that because most of the time people aren't really even sure themselves why they're doing something. So how on earth are you sure why somebody else is doing something, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, we cannot, I'm with that, we, yeah. We cannot know if behind what seems to us a simple submission to trends, there doesn't hide a moral spontaneity where the soul expresses itself. So they might actually mean it, even if they don't know they mean it. <laughs> and then number two, to to call somebody a virtue signaler is in some ways to virtue signal yourself. He says for another thing, and this seems essential, he actually... Uh, italicizes essential to me from the moment I denounce right thinking virtue signaling and another person I'm basically installing myself as his judge thus infringing on one of the major precepts of the gospel I'm going forth as a Pharisee since I'm implicitly claiming to be a better thinker free from the mediocre constraints that as I would have it shackle the other person's conduct so when you call somebody else a virtue signaler you are um, you are yourself engaging in virtue signaling um, and I, I think that's almost undeniable that uh uh, when, a, when a certain sort of right-winger uses that term, it's just as conformist as anything they're accusing the virtue signaler of doing. Yeah, I think that's about right. I, maybe I, I, maybe, I, maybe in, in saying that, maybe now I'm virtue signaling about virtue signaling about virtue signaling. Well, and that's what keeps this interesting, right? I, I will say that uh, my biblical studies background is coming up every time he uses Phariseeism as, a, as, as synonymous with moralism. Uh, because I keep wanting to say, okay, historically, that's not what the Pharisees were about. But I, I realize that he just means moralism, so I just translate in my mind. <laughs> and well, and as he says explicitly about forty-five times in the second essay, he's not speaking as a theologian. Right, right. Uh. He's not trained as a theologian. Toward the end of orthodoxy versus conformity, Marcel relies on a distinction from Henri Bergson um, between open morality and closed morality. And I'm interested in that distinction. He's obviously praising open morality. But that word open is at, at the very least in tension with the concept of orthodoxy as it's traditionally been conceived, right? Because orthodoxy is, at least in some things, un, unmovable. It's, it's, a, it's a closed system in some ways. How can we maintain both an open mind and our fidelity to the absolute word, David? The way that he compares closed and open morality is, uh, I think, interesting. The the way that he frames it, it's just it's just a paragraph really where he's um, laying these these ideas out. And also, this is not a uh, this is not a text that I've read. Um, the two sources of morality and religion. A Bergson? I, I don't know who that is. Henri Bergson is is quietly one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century, just because almost every existentialist and phenomenologist comes from him. But All I right. think he is, as you point out, much less read in English than, than he was 50 years ago, even. Bergson. All right. The former closed morality belongs to a being who is one with the society he belongs to. He and it are absorbed together in the same task of individual and social conservation. It is therefore supposed to be immutable. The other one is a push, a demand to move. The morality of the gospel is essential to that, uh, essentially that of an open soul. Quote, the act by which the soul opens out and broadens uh, opens out, broadens, and raises to pure spirituality a morality enclosed and materialized in ready-made rules. Unquote. Open morality is expressed by an ensemble ensemble of calls thrown at our conscience by the people who are re who represent what's best in humanity. Um, so, closed morality is this close identification with a very specific uh, social manifestation of, of a system of moral value and the rules that um, encode, enforce, and manifest it. And that 
unchangeable specific particular system um, is is closed. There's no alteration to it. The the open morality is one that uh, is can receive the call to conscience um, that arises in a moment. Um, it is uh, broadening and being raised to spirituality. And the reason why uh, the reason why this applies this this fits with Christianity and uh, is not only is authentic Christianity Christian thought the open thought par excellence we can say that it denies itself insofar as it is closed but we can also believe that orthodoxy understood in its truth roots the conditions in the supernatural which allows it to unfold the vastest and most unlimited horizons in the face of human knowledge and action so what permits um, a an orthodox morality to be to be an open morality is because orthodoxy is set up against the horizon of a transcendent supernatural that nonetheless really truly communicates in the here and now and has at points in time um, so that there is always a possibility for growing towards this real thing that is beyond your moment um, in which you know there is this there is this reality that your your growth your listening to a new call um, is still in harmony um, is still parallel to um, in sync with manifesting uh, this real thing outside it's not just simply oh well people's ideas about what's right change it's that in the historical moment um, what it might look like to live in harmony with the real rooted supernatural um, from which orthodoxy grows um, that living in harmony with that in a particular moment might come to be different and that heeding uh, the human voices of what they call the those, those who represent the best in humanity um, is is something that the open morality will always do um, to speak maybe in biblical terms um, the people of God um, should always be um, should always be looking for a prophet. Um, should always be willing to hear the you know accept the possibility of a prophet to speak into their moment. Uh, and the prophets, you know, the prophets always called back to the word of God, and they always spoke to and of uh, the God whose expectations, uh, whose whose covenant. Um, stipulations and relatedness was was clear called back to it but um, never simply repeated the law always said and now this is in this moment this is what faithfulness will look like um, so there there's an there's a, a, a way in which it can grow and it can change to the moment but not because it's decided to contradict itself not because it's mercurial but because it's growing in harmony with something that is beyond the moment yeah, um, and and here too, I think Marcel's Catholicism is really important. There's a concept yeah. in Catholicism called the development of doctrine, which comes from um, soon to be, I think maybe he'll already be a saint by the time this airs, John Henry Newman, and um, and the the idea here is doctrine doesn't change, it doesn't evolve, but it does develop, it deepens, and actually from the Office of Readings this morning, there's a um, there's a uh, passage from this guy who I've never heard of, St. Vincent of Lorraine. Let me, let me read this. Is there to be no development of religion in the Church of Christ? Certainly there is to be development and on the largest scale. Who can be so grudging to men, so full of hate for God as to try to prevent it? But it must be, truly be development of the faith, not alteration of the faith. Development means that each thing expands to be itself, while alteration means that a thing is changed from one thing to another. The understanding, knowledge, and wisdom of one and all, of individuals as well as of the whole church, ought then to make great and vigorous progress with the passing of the ages and the centuries, but only along its own line of development, that is, with the same doctrine, the same meaning, and the same import. So the idea, mm -hmm. I believe, um, I'm still new to Catholicism, but the, the idea, I believe, is that um, doctrine changes and you understand it more and more, and so it, it can look like it's shifting, but things aren't being overturned. You're just understanding them on new levels. 
And I, I think Marcel is very much in line with that. Yeah, I'm reminded of a, a, a few different authors who, who've influenced me. I mean, one of them, you know, when David was talking about the prophetic, it certainly echoes uh, Walter Brueggemann's main project in his book, The Prophetic Imagination, the notion that what the prophets do, just as David said, is not to uh, invent new symbols from their own imaginative resources, uh, but rather to reactivate ancient symbols uh, as nodes of critique of, you know, the sort of static imperial imposition of order. Uh, so, you know, whether you're talking about Moses and the Pharaoh, whether you're talking about uh, Elijah and Ahab, uh, whether you're talking about, you know, uh, Jeremiah and the, you know, the coming exile, what we're looking at is, you know, the willingness to let God speak, again, in an idiom that is drawn not from nowhere, but from memory, uh, to, you know, offer that critique, and then ultimately to offer a vision for possibility that, again, lies beyond the imagination of the imperial. I'm, I'm also reminded, and I mean, it, it's interesting that, you know, we're at the same time critiquing the public personae of David Bentley Hart and John Milbank, but I'm invoking their ideas. But for them, uh, one of the ideas they share in common is that when historical intellectual change uh, is not rooted in the divine, you know, for David Bentley Hart, this is usually the vision of Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, for Milbank, it's, it's the vision of St. Augustine. But visions of historical change that are not rooted in those things uh, eventually become Nietzschean because, uh, you know, when you boil it down and reduce it, when you don't have that uh, reference to the infinite, uh, what you end up with is the will of whatever intellectual figure uh, imposes a new change on the intellectual world. Uh, so it's interesting that, you know, the, the closed morality uh, never remains closed uh, for those guys, and I, I think this is a, a good uh, corollary, I guess I would call it, or maybe a good uh, next step for uh, Marcel's thought here. When change happens, you know, it really does make a difference whether it becomes an Augustinian or Gregorian change or whether it becomes a Nietzschean change. Yeah, very good. And, and I mean, it's it's worth pointing out, John Henry Newman, his great enemy in the 19th century is theological liberalism. So when he talks about the development of doctrine, he's not talking about Schleiermacher. This is the development of doctrine within, um, within orthodoxy. Uh, so th this notion that Marcel uses of... Uh, Orthodoxy understood in its truth roots the conditions in the supernatural, which, which allows it to unfold the vastest and most unlimited horizons in the face of human knowledge and action. That rooting is really important. So, so it's not like you get to overturn everything, yeah. but it is, it, it is noting that only the things that are essential um, are un, unchangeable. Now, ultimately, that's never going to set, settle any historical dispute. Because, you know, if you're uh, if you're on if you're in one party, you're going to say that the other guy's changes are uprooting what is essential, and what we are preserving is what is essential. If you're on the other side, you're going to say, well, what we're changing is the historical accretion of the will of man, not on the essence of the divine. If but, only there were some sort of group that was capable <laughs> of setting orthodoxy. Maybe we could call it a magisterium. Well, I think we're going to talk next week about the fact that it, that historically there are actually a plurality of groups. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, again, I think I think Marcel's Catholicism is really important to understanding this because, in some ways, having that magisterium allows him to um, to go a little further than he would be able to if you were holding to a more Protestant conception of orthodoxy. And I, I don't mean to insult Protestants by that, but I, I do think that he is speaking specifically as a Catholic here, and that allows him to allow doctrine to develop without risking becoming liberal Protestantism. But as, as Nathan points out, we are running out of time, and we still have a bunch of questions left. So I think what we're going to do is make this our first ever two-part episode. So we're going to cut off here. And, and come back next week and finish this conversation. Um, do you, either of you have anything to say before we do that? Any, anything else about this first essay that, uh, that, that you want to get in there? 
previously on the Christian Humanist Podcast. I, it's never happened before. I, I, I assume that because the Orthodoxy and Conformity essay is only six pages long, I didn't figure we'd spend a whole hour on it. So mea culpa there, listeners. But we figure you'd yep. rather hear, uh, you'd rather us split it up than to have to listen to two hours of us in a row. No, I think we can pick this back up next week, Michael. Sounds good. So next week we'll come back and talk about that essay, In the Margins of Ecumenism, um, and and we'll continue to refer to Amari, French, Hart, Milbank, and whoever else we want to. Uh, in the meantime, you can visit our website, which is christianhumanist.org. Our, our show notes will be up there along with links to these two essays. Uh, you can you can send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, the Christian Humanist Radio Network has a new Twitter account, uh, which is CH Radio Network uh, at Twitter, or at CH Radio Network. You'd think I would know how to use it. Um, so feel free to uh, follow us there and engage with us there. Uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. For Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>